Hello everyone and welcome to the Investing City Podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. Okay, on today's episode of the Investing City podcast, I'm super excited to have Paul Andriola. So thanks so much for being here, Paul. Hey, great to be here, Ryan. Thank you. Awesome. So, I mean, I'd love to just start off with a little bit of how you got interested in investing and you have a rich business background. So I'm just curious for the origin story. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> it goes way back. Uh, I uh, I started investing relatively early. I think it was in my late teens. And um, the way I went about it was probably like everybody else. I sort of stumbled into it and uh I, I read a lot of books, but, um, I, you know, ultimately I found that, that books by themselves didn't do enough. You had to really, uh, you had to learn sort of through trial and error. And I did a lot of error <laughs> uh, early on and uh, sort of started like everybody else. I, I, I gravitated towards names that I knew. So some big names, you know, that we all kind of probably know, know and love right now, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, over time, I, I sort of morphed into or my strategy morphed into something that was a little bit more my style, my personality, and eventually made it all the way down to, to micro caps. So it was it was a wild and crazy journey, but um, uh, it, it got me where I am now. And, and through that process, you know, after studying, after kind of doing what I did, um, I actually went to school for construction management, which doesn't really lend itself to uh, becoming an investor. But um, I, I worked in, in the construction industry for a while. And what that did is sort of gave my grub stake and allowed me to learn while I was working and make my mistakes while I was working. Um, and then eventually actually decided I wanted to leave the construction industry um, and s- spend a little bit more time doing what I really loved, which was investing. And um, I actually started trading on my own. Um, is doing fairly well and then um i had uh you know some friends and family that saw what i was doing and they wanted to see if i could uh you know help them out which i did um and uh then became a broker because i thought that was the next logical step and realized that being a broker or an investment advisor had a lot more to do with managing someone else's money and and their emotions and everything that comes with it uh, where I wanted to manage my own emotions, which is hard enough. And, uh, and then just slowly sort of left the industry and, and, you know, through a few other things that I tried, uh, found that, uh, you know, the more time I spent doing what I love, the, the better I get at it. And, uh, eventually became a full-time investor. Love it. So mm-hmm. how did you really make the, you mentioned you kind of transitioned to more micro caps. Like how did that happen? Um, well, living living in Canada, you you sort of get microcaps thrown in your face quite often, right? We've got a lot of junior mining companies and, and things like that. So my my exposure to the microcap space uh, really came from um, 
sort of the wrong side of it. Um, you know, being being pitched stories, you know, listening to tips and and, and stuff like that, where um, you're kind of you're hearing the promoted stories rather than going finding the right kind of companies. Um, so that's kind of kind of how I fell into it. But how I learned to do it right had a lot more to do with some of the books that I started reading. Um, and one interesting story, how I actually really um, learned how to do it the right way was um, I, I entered a, a stock picking contest years ago. And um, I thought I did well. Um, I, I can't remember, but I out of about 500 people that were in it, I think I came in around 50th. So I thought I did okay. Um, but the guy that came in first just blew everybody out of the water. Like absolutely second place wasn't even close. Um, and they interviewed him. And what, what this guy said was, hey, I learned everything uh, by reading a certain book. And his strategy, believe it or not, was he just basically bought anything that was hitting a 52-week high that was trading close to a dollar. Um, so, of course, I had to run out and buy that book as soon as I could. And it was a, it was a uh, book called How to Make Money in Stocks by William O'Neill, which is, a, uh, you know, I think everybody's well familiar with it right now. But that's real. That was the cornerstone of the strategy that I started to use, and I and I adopted it and sort of formulated it more to a Canadian uh, sort of marketplace and mostly Canadian microcaps. So that was the nucleus of my strategy. Was uh, was that book? Yeah. So can slim and Canadian microcaps. I, I I feel like even just the differentiation. There's not a lot of people doing that. <laughs> Well, I, I I'd be surprised. I mean, sophisticated investors have heard the book, but a lot of a lot of smaller and you know unsophisticated investors probably have never really heard the book, and, and let alone the Canceling Theory. But it flips everything upside down, right? You're you're taught early on that you buy low, sell high, and um, you know things like that. You're you, you got to break down a balance sheet, and it's all about balance sheets and stuff like this. But when you actually do your homework and you you live through it, you realize that no, you you want to kind of find things that are doing things differently. And, and the canceling methodology really, really highlighted it for me. And like I said, I've tweaked it over time, uh, partly to fit the market that I operate in, but also partly to fit my personality. And so far, so good. So what are some examples of those tweaks? Um, okay, so in, in Canada, we, we tend, for example, see smaller companies. We tend to see, you know, microcaps go, or, or companies go public much earlier. So they tend to be nano caps rather than micro caps. So, you know, in canceling, they talk about, you know, institutional ownership and, you know, $10 share price and things like that. Where in Canada, I mean, there, there's very little of that that exists here. So you got to be prepared to buy stocks when there's no institutional ownership and, you know, well, well below $10. So that, that that's an example. Um you know, we we also look at, at things where they may be looking for, you know, five years of, of profitability. We'll look at something significantly smaller than that. So, you know, because we draw from a different type of pool as far as uh, microcaps here in Canada, we have to be a little bit more astute. We have to look at them a little bit earlier stage. So, yeah, so th those are examples of a few tweaks. Um you know, we're just smaller in Canada. We, we a lot, lot of small companies here as opposed to what you guys have in the States. So was that like reading the Kent or um, how to make money in stocks? Was that like really hard to change your mind or was it pretty easy to kind of see that and, and get into it? 
So it was at first, right? Because it is a real shift. And and when, when you go through, when you become a licensed broker, you have to take certain courses and, and these, these, these courses will actually teach you the old school way of, of doing things. And it was so different than what I was reading in Canceling. So it took some, uh, some convincing to change me, but I'll tell you when it really started to, to, to sort of change my mind pretty quickly is when it actually, when I applied it, when I started to buy stocks that sort of hit this criteria, I was blown away at how fast the, the returns start to show up. Um, early on, I had I had a year um, where where the portfolio, my portfolio returned over a thousand percent in one year. Right. So it doesn't take too much of that to convince you that you might be onto something. <laughs> right. So and since then and since then, of course, it's it's only been more ingrained because I've, I've been lucky enough to find some some truly outstanding winners. Just so everyone's on the same page, maybe break down a little bit of the cancel method in, in some detail and, and really what you're looking for. Okay, well, I think one of the things that everybody's, I'd, I'd recommend to investors is you, you have to really understand um, and build a process to find candidates, like find stock candidates. And a lot of people, what they do is it's kind of haphazard. They they may know what a good company looks like, but they don't know how to find it, right? So. So what I do that's part of the CanSlim process is, is um, well, CanSlim is based on, I'd say three or four major factors. One is you wanna buy companies that are sort of seeing hyper growth, right? So you don't wanna buy something that's just sort of a base business that is slowly growing, it's got a great balance sheet. You want something that's growing quickly, right? So Google, when it was, when it was young, Microsoft, when it was early, you know, Amazon, all these companies, they have hyper growth. They're growing at 25% or more, right, per year. That's kind of what you want to see. Revenue growth that is that is moving very, very quickly. Um, then what you want to see is you want to see the profitability is doing the same thing. You want to see profitability is growing very quickly as well. So that's another key thing. Um, and then this weird one that a lot of people refuse to sort of accept as, as a good idea, but stocks that are either close to hitting 52-week highs or absolutely hitting 52-week highs. So, you know, basically almost a, it could be a stock that's trading higher than it's ever traded. And you got to wrap your head around why you would want to be buying that stock, right? And, and the big reason is, look, if a stock's going to go from a dollar to $100, a, a lot of points along the way, it's going to be hitting a 52-week high, right? So that's those, those are the three real key criteria that you're looking for when you're looking at this stuff. But the, the point I wanted to make as well is that when, when you have a system like that, then what you got to do is you got to go and find those companies. You got to find a system that allows you to go and find those companies. So what I do, and I do it with my partners now, is uh, I go through uh, CDAR filings in Canada, which is the equivalent of Edgar filings uh, in the States. And what we do is we go through every single filing. And we're looking for those companies that meet that sort of those growth criteria. And when we do, you know, we put them aside. Now we've got that pool of, of companies to look at and say, okay, which ones are the best ones here? that fit all the other criteria that we want to see in these companies. Right. Gotcha. That's just like Buffett in the early days with the Moody's manual, just going through one by one. Absolutely. I love you gotta, that. Yeah, you got to, that's the old adage. You got to, whoever flips over the most rocks uh, wins, right? That's right. the whole thing. Yeah. So like how far off the 52 week high are you looking typically? Like what, what would be just unacceptable? Okay, so um, I, you know, I, again, my my experience in the markets uh, gives me a little bit of advantage, but um, a couple things to consider when when I start playing in the real nano caps, and these these may be companies that, that nobody's ever really looked at before or, or has very little following. 
sometimes they're not hitting 52 week highs, right? Sometimes I may be the driver that forces it to become a 52 week high because I think it's so good and I'm going to buy enough stock to make that happen. Um, but otherwise, I look at things like um, this is about the only time that technicals really matter to me. If, it, if a stock's had a really extended move, like if it's moved for three or four days aggressively, um, I'm going to I'm going to wait for a pullback. Um, and, and that may mean it's moved 50% in three days, or it may have moved 20% on a lot of volume. Some of it was really a little bit more subjective. Um, but um, I've seen enough examples where you almost want to see that almost ballistic move higher because it's a sign of what we call discovery. The stock is now being discovered by somebody and that audience likely is going to continue to build and if the company is doing the right things fundamentally, I mean, we can see a move that that can last, you know, up to five, six years. So, you know, paying paying a little bit too much early on when when it's it's the early stage of discovery, more times than not, it's worked out very well for us. Gotcha. So it's not necessarily having to hit a 52-week high or anything like that, but you're really focusing on the fundamentals. But if it's hitting a 52-week high, that certainly won't dissuade you that would almost be encouraging i i, I would i lean towards companies that are named 52 guys yes gotcha yeah. um okay very interesting so just so we're on the same page as well what do you what's the line between when a nano cap becomes a micro cap uh okay so again difference uh, difference in canada and u.s so we always get a kick out of this um so I, I don't really sit there and say, okay, this is a nano cap, this is a micro cap. To me, it almost doesn't matter if, if the fundamentals make sense and all the other things I'm looking for there. And if it's, whether it's a $10 million market cap or $200 million, I'm not going to get too upset about it. Um, but what I find in Canada, and this is again why I play in the sandbox, is there seems to be very defined um, levels that bring different kind of investor discovery. So in Canada, $100 million market cap is really the, sort of the base level before you start to see institutional investors start to get interested, right? So a company that might be trading 60, $70 million market cap, institutional investors not gonna be that interested there, but one that's pierced that hundred million, all of a sudden they get interested. Now that is a big deal for me because um, that's usually where the capital really starts to make an impact on a share price. And, and we've seen it recently, you know, uh, that's had uh, an impact on some of the, the names that we're, you know, that we're holders of. So, so you got that hundred million dollar market cap, and then you got a fifty million dollar market cap. Where much below fifty million dollars, you don't get any sophisticated investors really paying a lot of attention. So for us, it's that fifty million dollar mark is kind of anything below that. We're really sort of playing in our own sandbox, and we see very, very little competition between fifty and hundred million. You see a little bit more, but over hundred million, you're really starting to get into the territory where institutional guys are starting to play ball. Gotcha. And even just from a practical sense, if somebody wanted to buy, you know, a stock under 50 million, what does it actually look like in terms of volume? And because I'm sure you're having to, like, think through all the dynamics of how much you want. And then, you know, there might not even be any volume there. So, okay, this is this is separates the men from the boys, so to speak, because um, that's that seems to scare away people is that the fact that there's low liquidity on some of these small names and and for for me and a number of other investors that have done well that that low liquidity actually entices us to to play ball because we know it scares others away right everybody's concerned if i buy the stock I, and, and i make a mistake i can't sell it 
well, then don't make a mistake, right? <laughs> so it, it solidifies our, our due diligence to make sure if we're going to get into this, you know, we don't want to be going into Never Never Land where we can't sell. Um, so we're, you know, the, the, they're all different. Uh, you know, a $5 million market cap may actually have more volume than a $50 million market cap, depending on the structure of the ownership. And that's another thing that we look at. We, we try to get a real good sense of who owns the stock, what kind of shareholders are there, how has it been financed in the past, all these things that may give us a better understanding of where liquidity may come in, right? So if, you, if you're looking at a stock that's trading at, you know, 20 cents and it, it was financed, you know, a little while ago at 25 or 30 cents, there's a good chance that as the price gets closer to that level, you're going to see more liquidity. So those are things we sort of factor in when we're starting to enter a position. But for the most part, you're right, these, these sort of sub $50 million market caps require a lot of patience if you want to build a, a position in them. You got to be you got to be prepared to sort of sit there and be very lonely um, and sometimes be the only buyer. Um, I can tell you by experience that the more times that I'm the only buyer, or I feel very lonely uh, when I'm buying. Uh, those have turned out to be some of my best winners. Very interesting. So you mentioned you don't be wrong. I, I know you're being kind of humble. It's not just, you know, high growth, profitability and 52 week high. You set those companies aside right after you go through all the CDAR filings. But then what is the actual due diligence process like? How how do you really minimize the probability that you are wrong? Uh, okay, so it, it's a lot of number crunching. So we we try to go back and see if there's been any historical issues. We, we will check with, um, you know, we'll check into management, we'll check into the boards. Uh, to see what the makeup of the board is, to get a sense, you know, are these are these players that have sort of are transactional, or they're more involved in promotions, or, or more involved in business building. Um, you know, a big piece of all this is you want to see a management team and a board that have a significant vested interest. That seems to protect us a lot of times. Um, understand how they got their positions, whether it was you know free stock or options, or whether they paid money out of you know out of the market. There's a lot of factors that way. Um, the, the fact that I spent years working within the Canadian capital markets industry, I know a lot of contacts and I know sort of things to look for that will raise red flags. Um, so we do a lot of stuff that is both um, sort of fundamentally driven, but there's a lot of back sort of backdoor stuff that we look for, um, just history of the management team and history of, of the business. But the, the the thing you got to remember at the end of the day that um, what we're trying to really do is reduce it down to just business risk, right? Um, there's a lot of other things that you can find that that'll add risk, um, but if you can reduce it down to business risk, it doesn't completely do away with with the risk involved, right? But you're reducing it as much as you can. So for us, that's kind of the goal. We want to see that the only risk we've got left is business risk. And then you want to try to buy it with such a margin of safety that even if you're wrong, you still do okay. So we still get it wrong, right? We still get it wrong, but more times than not, it, it, it's wrong because there's an unforeseen circumstance that even the management team wouldn't have seen, right? Right. So what are some risks that you find in nano cap, micro cap land that you wouldn't necessarily find with larger companies? Wow. Okay. We, we, I don't think we have enough time to cover them all, but... Um, so one of the big ones is really understanding uh, financing risk. Um, I think a lot of people don't really understand what that means um, when they're investing in something. And, and to us, what that means is, okay, if, if a company is 
um, you know, what's the likelihood they're going to have to come back to the market and raise money at, at valuations that are not going to be conducive to, to our holdings? Um, you know, if, if you've got a company that's got plenty of cash and is nicely profitable, that risk really, really gets diminished. Um, but the other thing that we find is, um, and um, I, I learned this from a gentleman named Adam Epstein um, years ago, but you really got to understand why the company is public and why the board is um, sort of made up the way they are. And what I learned through Adam is that you need a board that has capital markets experience. Like it can't just be industry players. It can't be friends of management. It has to be somebody that's got, you know, their money at stake and wants to make sure that whatever happens is, is going to do them well. Um, and surprisingly, when you have somebody like that on the board, how, how much better the company performs. So it's things like that that we look for. Um, and, you know, when you're a big company, um, it doesn't matter as much. You know, the board is likely already made up of, of, you know, industry experts and you've got analysts that can help with capital markets and you've got all sorts of other infrastructure that allows that to happen. But when you're a small microcap, you don't have the resources to be able to cover everything. So you got to make sure that, that, you know, whether it's the board or whether it's management team, that they've de-risked themselves and, you know, they've done it because they've got a significant vested interest. Gotcha. Yeah. And I've seen you talk about share structure and you mentioned it earlier where you don't even the absolute number of shares is something that kind of can key you in on that. Right. Yeah. So there's some interesting stats that we've seen over time. Um, so clearly the, the it's everything is about supply and demand. Right. So the, the, the lower supply of shares that are available. So, you know, 20 million share company is going to be better than something that's got 100 million shares outstanding. Um, Again, I, I, I find a lot of investors really misunderstand that. And what we found in the past is that any company that has managed to keep their share count low tends to have other attributes that make for a good investment. And, you know, we, we treat, you know, we look at shares just like any other resource, right? So if, if a management and a board are going to, you know, treat their shares like gold and keep them sort of, you know, tightly held, then chances are they're going to treat all their other resources, their staff, the cash they have on the balance sheet, their, you know, everything else that they work with tends to fit that criteria. So surprisingly, we've seen in the past that companies that have, you know, less than I think it's 30 or 40 million shares, they've got a higher, you know, likelihood to be profitable than a company that's got hundred million shares or more outstanding. Now it shouldn't matter, but for some reason, that's just the way it works. You know, um, so we, we, we look at that and we find it extremely important now, you know, the share, what the share counts telling us. Mm. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, companies that might start with the low share count, they just, if they're not profitable, they have to keep raising money and eventually end up with this ballooning share count. So it makes a ton of sense. And um, that, I love that. It's a very practical tip. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I would love to hear you tell a story about some of these companies that you found early on that have just gone to, you know, 100x. And I know a popular one is Xpel, but you can tell the story of anyone that you're, you're, uh, you're thinking about. Well, okay, I'll tell you. So my my biggest mistakes in my career have not been, you know, owning stocks that have gone down, they've been owning stocks that have gone up and, and quite frankly, selling them too soon. Um, and I've got a lot of those examples, um, but Expel is clearly one that uh, that, that I, is near and dear to my heart. Um, but another one that probably taught me the most early on was a company called Bowflex. 
No, both legs. You're probably yeah. too young to, to recognize. Oh, the workout that. machine? Yeah, I see those exactly. commercials all the time exactly. back in the day. Okay, so you touched on something. So that used to be a, uh, a Canadian listed company. Um, and uh, I remember this is back when I was a broker and I was recommending the stock to a number of my clients in around the sort of 90 cent to dollar level. And uh, this company's financials, I mean, the this thing was growing like crazy, 100% plus per year, profitable, you know, 200% plus per year profit growth. I mean, it was just, it was a monster. Uh, and I'd say within about a year, that's that dollar stock was trading at 10, $11. And my thinking was, wow, I've had a massive win. I'm selling, let's get out as fast as we can before it goes back down or who knows what's going to happen. Well, you know, I, I, I sold it based on, on profit. I just sold it because, because the stock was higher. And really, the, the company was still growing at that hyper rate. Um, that that stock, I think, ultimately went up to the equivalent of about two hundred and fifty dollars. So it would it would have been a you know a 200, 250 bagger for me if I properly held. But the big mistake was I sold it just because I was up, which is a mistake I I try never to make again. Right. So that's a that's a great story. But um, another big one was a company called Metafast. Uh, Metafast turned out to be another hundred bagger. Um, same mistake. I sold too early. Um, so, you know, I've, I've learned that when you get these, these sort of monster stocks that um, as long as the fundamentals are still there, as long as you're still doing the right things, your goal really is to hold on for dear life. Um, and quite frankly, instead of thinking about selling after you buy it, you should be looking at opportunities to continue to add to your position. So, you know, we're still looking for deals like that. We've, we've had a number that have, have done okay. You know, I, I consider a 10 bagger okay, but it's, you know, I'm still looking for the next 100, 200 bagger. And I'm, I'm, I know it's out there. I just got to dig a little deeper. I love that. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you're holding stocks for a very long time, inevitably there's hiccups. So when do you, how can you differentiate between a hiccup and, you know, like a, a broken thesis? Okay, so my friend Ian Castle says this a lot. You, you got to get in a position where you know the company better than almost anybody else, right? So you really, really have to um, you do your homework, get as, as understanding of the business as you possibly can. Um, these hyper growers, they always, and I mean always, have a come to Jesus moment, some point where you know it, it tests your fortitude and tests your conviction. Um, you've you know, you, you have to feel comfortable enough to say, okay, this is temporary. This is uh, based on what I understand. The, the risk reward is either, you know, as good as it was before or it's improved. Um, but it is like where, what protects me a lot in what I do is I tend to, you know, when I have a monster runner, when I have something that's, that's moving a lot, I try to constantly find a reason to not sell, but I'm I'm always trying to find a better risk reward opportunity out there. So if um, I've been fortunate that most of the times when we get caught in something that's running hard, they they do tend to get overpriced, and you get an opportunity to sort of change for something that's got a little bit better risk reward. So it's hard. That's you know probably the hardest part of this business is holding on to your winners. Um, but part of what we do is we try to build in a bit of an insurance package by finding something else that's got the same same sort of 
you know, fundamentals, but just a, a, a lower price. Gotcha. So will you trim something or will you get out of it completely to switch and then switch back when it's a better price or is it just, you know, very contextual? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no, I got nothing set in stone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but what, what I always try to remind myself is there's always another one, right? And in some cases I will still sell earlier, but I more than make up for it in something else that I've, I've switched to. So, you know, what, what happens with a lot of these micro caps when they really explode is you get this, this margin expansion or, or um, PE expansion. So Expel, for example, when I was buying it, it was trading at eight times earnings um, and, and growing very quickly. I mean, the, the company's still growing very quickly, but it's nowhere close than eight times earnings multiple. So when it gets to trading at 30, 40 times earnings, and you can find something else that's growing at 100% and you know trading at eight or 10 times earnings, all of a sudden it makes that decision pretty easy. You're, you're gonna trim, right? Now, if the position is too big, then you're just trimming enough to sort of enter the other position. It sort of balances out that, that, that opportunity a little bit. It's rare that I sell out completely ever, unless I see something really go wrong with the business. It's more this gradual, you know, moving from one to the other. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. Are you ever looking at technicals after that initial buy where you said that, you know, something might come down a little bit? So I, so technicals I tend to use just when I, when I'm trying to add to my position, I'll try to try to say, okay, this, this looks like the buy spot here based on this type of pullback. So yeah, I do um, use technicals, especially when there's more volume and the, the stock's more active. But early on, there's no point using technicals because, I mean, I can make a chart look however you want it to look when it's a very liquid stock, right? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, that's super helpful. I, I would like to hear a little bit more about, uh, you know, you're involved in a lot of things. You got small cap discoveries, you're the CEO of Name Silo, director of Atlas Engineered. So just how do you manage your average day? You've got a lot going on. Well, the beauty is like really all I'm doing is one thing, right? I'm looking for great investments. And I do that with both the small cap discoveries and I do that as, as name silo. Um, and it's capital allocation, right? For for what I do with uh, Atlas, that has more to do with just putting sort of smart investors in front of a story and let the management team do their thing. So the nice thing is it kind of all, I, I kind of do one thing. I just, I do it with three different versions of a hat on. Um it get busy and crazy sometimes, but I, you know, part of it is I love it. I'm I'm up, I'm up at the crack of dawn, and uh, my wife will come and complain because I'm still looking at financials at 10, 11 o'clock at night. So I just, I, as long as my wife doesn't, uh, you know, hit me too hard in the back of the head, I think I can manage. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd love to hear a little bit about Name Silo and just kind of the origin of of how that you know came to be. Okay, long story there too. I'll, I'll try to shorten it. Um, I, I was I stepped on the board as a, a favor to a friend um, who's actually had a mining deal of all things, and uh, when that when that sort of didn't work out, they kind of turned to me and said, you know, let, let's see if we can find something outside the mining space, and maybe you can find a business that that makes sense. Uh, we tried a few different things, uh, but eventually uh, I came back and said, look, my my skill set isn't necessarily running a business; it's trying to find you know, good ideas to invest in. And we did, we started, believe it or not, we started the portfolio with $50,000. And right now, and that was about seven years ago, I think it's turned into the portfolio itself is about 5 million, but it also allowed us to buy um, 
control of an operating business that now uh, it's a domain registry or registrar rather. And um, it, it spits off a lot of cash. So now what we're doing is we're taking that cash and, um, uh, and then, you know, reallocating it to investments that we see uh, that are, you know, good opportunities out there and fitting the criteria that we're looking for. So, um, you know, looking for both private and public companies that are hyper growers that we can invest uh, where we think there's a serious mispricing evaluation and, um, you know, give proper capital uh, allocation to and, you uh, Hopefully, you know, we, we have our next expel and, uh, and, and both less. I love that. I mean, also similar to Buffett, instead of insurance premiums, you got domains just spitting off free cash. So I like uh, how you've done your own thing. Like you've taken the principles and done your own thing. It's amazing you did that. I, I try not to say I'm doing something like Warren Buffett is doing, but it, it is. We're, we're the domain business. If you really look at it, it's pretty amazing. It's um, it, it is a cash upfront business. There's very little risk. Um, there's a lot of stickiness to the business. Um, so we've been able to grow the domain business by. Um, oh gosh, I think we bought it when it was doing 11 million in sales. It's now going to do about 45 million in revenue uh, this year. So it's been growing very quickly. Um, and more importantly, the cash has been growing very quickly. So we take that free cash flow now, and we're we're allocating to. To investments that we think make sense. So uh, uh, hopefully, I can do something, uh, you know, slightly, slightly as well as uh, Warren Buffett has. Wow. So how much of that is organic growth? It's all organic growth. Wow. Um, you know, what's beautiful about this business is uh, we we spend very little money on marketing. It's all word of mouth marketing as well. So um, I, I I get into what the domain industry looks like, but if you're not GoDaddy, you're kind of in 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 trouble more or less. And we we operate the exact opposite of GoDaddy, where we're we're discount operators. So the fact that we're you know able to save people a lot of money, that that word gets out, and uh, people like to tell their friends where to save money, and they they come to us, and lo and behold, we we grow our business. Love that. Um, so I'm I'm also just couple more questions i'm curious when you have a really small company some people say you know like it's small for a reason you know if it was really a great company it, it already would be big so what are some of the most common opportunities why small companies exist and just like the origin stories of of why the opportunities exist so i, I think that well um what, what we notice is a lot of successful microcaps tend to operate in niches, right? Um, so they, you know, the, the existing business or opportunity they have is relatively small and it keeps out the big competitors, right? So, but that, so if you can successfully capture a niche, um, what I find is a lot of good operators, they find another niche to kind of bolt on, right? So all of a sudden these niches grow into something that's sizable and that's actually where the trouble starts. The minute you get big enough, you, you start inviting competitors. So these microcaps, there are some that will constantly just stay small because, you know, their niche isn't growing very quickly, but there's others that if you can capture it right, you find the ones that have that capability just bursting out. And I would argue that Expel to some degree did that. I would say Bowflex did that. These are companies that, you know, originally, when, when I first looked at paint protection film, I had no idea what that was. And everybody was telling me how small that industry was, right? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's significantly bigger business, but now Expel is bolted on a whole bunch of other opportunities along with it because of what they're able to do. So never discount a microcap purely for that reason. You got to understand what else they can morph into. And um, and yeah, that's what we love is that you know go dominate a niche, keep high margins in that niche, and then go find a reason to to burst out of there. 
Mm, yeah, makes perfect sense. And I love that because they they can really dominate that and then use the free cash flow to morph into something. Um, but, but I'll tell you something. When when somebody comes to me and says, you know, we're starting this new business and if we can just capture 1% of this massively large business, we'll do great. I, I turned around and I said, look, if you're going to go compete with Google, Google will crush you for that 1% that you're trying to gain, right? But if somebody comes out and says, look, I'm, we're going to go and get 50% of a market that's only going to be $100 million a year, Google's never going to come down that market, right? But you're going to make a great business capturing that market, right? And then you can always decide what you do once you get there. But that's that's where a lot of money is made, just capturing that, that, that niche market. Very well said. So... Closing question that I love asking people is what are some habits that have really contributed to your success? Insanity. <laughs> I do this religiously. I go in and I, uh, my goal is to know more about every single microcap in Canada than anybody else. Right. So that, that, that means I'm up very early and I, I read a lot of financials and now I, and I love to associate with people that sort of think that way. Right. I think anybody who, spends as much time as I do in the nano cap micro cap space probably has a bit of a screw loose. So you, you, you see some really interesting people in this space, but if you did, if you're determined to go and make a living doing this, it's very doable, but you got to put in the effort and it's repetitive and it is getting out there and doing sort of the right things over and over again and continuing to refine that. I'm still learning as I go, but um, it, it's, it, you have to build that habit of repetitiveness and, understanding the markets and understanding your emotions and, you know, being just being diligent, right? Um, if, you, if, if you put the time and effort into it, like you would in almost any other serious business, you do very well. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time, Paul. Really interesting. And I love that nano caps canceling method and you're just doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, so I really appreciate your time. Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Appreciate the, the, the interest as well. Thanks so much for listening to the Investing City podcast. If you didn't already know, here at Investing City, we also run an investment research service. Our flagship offering, the Dynasty Membership, includes all the resources you need to save time and boost your returns in the market. We provide a real money portfolio layered with weekly research, a community forum on Slack, and databases covering hundreds of companies. You can check it out at our website, investingcity.org. Thanks so much, and have a good one.